and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, in the immortal words of Iggy Azalea, we're bringing 88 back. My guest is Richard Chismar, author of countless short stories, the founder of Landmark Zine, Cemetery Dance, and the co-author, with Stephen King, no less, of Gwendy's Button Box. After a career ushering other writers into the limelight, Rich has released one of the biggest horror books of the summer, and as you'll hear very soon, one of my absolute favourites. That book, Chasing the Boogeyman, is a unique beast. Rich will give you more details, but to set the plate, it's an illusory mix of real-life memoir and horror fiction. Rich takes us back to the small town of his youth. He introduces us to the people who really lived there, and tells us the legends of the shadowy parts of town. Then he sets a serial killer loose, and the lines between memory and fiction begin to waver, and I'm still not entirely sure on the exact contours. We have a lot of highfalutin conversation about memory and truth, and the rose-tinted rearview mirror on adolescence. But we also talk about scatological fights and local monsters, the Blair Witch Project and belief, and the influence of King, Bradbury, and other sepia-toned American writers. You'll quickly realise that this is one of my very favourite conversations so far on this podcast. So, without further delay, come with me to a tree-lined Maryland town. Kids are playing, dogs are barking, and the autumn sun is shining on the bodies in the woods. Let's talk scared. Hi, Richard, and thanks for joining me on Talking Scared. Thanks for having me on. This one's a real thrill for me, as reasons we'll get into as we proceed, but we'll start off in the way I always start off. How are you and where in the world are you? I'm doing well. I am uh, I am in Harford County, Maryland, which is about an hour north of uh, Baltimore. And uh, like I said, I'm doing well. Good to hear. Good to hear. It's weird hearing you say you're in Harford County because location plays a significant part in, in the book we're here to talk about. It does. Your new novel... I don't know if we dare call it that, but yeah, your new novel, Chasing the Boogeyman. Right, I'm going to dispense with any attempt at a clever segue. I'm just going to tell you outright that I absolutely loved this book. Thank you. I read it in three kind of hundred page sittings and I would have gladly read another thousand. Mm. Now, every week I say how much I enjoy people's books. I enjoy books, but this one like a few we've had so far this year, is a real, real standout. I appreciate that. So, yeah, I wanted to say that up front, get my obsequiousness out in front of us so uh, no one's under any illusion about my enthusiasm. (laughs) There is one caveat to that. Before we go any further, I should say that in a recent episode with Sadie Hartman and Emily Hughes, it was revealed to me with much merriment that I can't say the word boogeyman properly. Now, <laughs> it sounds fine to me. Exactly, it's because I'm kind of controlling it. But <laughs> I guarantee, within a few minutes, my my northern twangle will set in, and I start saying "boogeyman," which just sounds Boogie ridiculous. Man. No, actually, it sounds, that sounds kind of creepy. I like, it. and I've heard it "bogeyman." I've heard it pronounced all kinds of different ways. All right, I'll, I'll do my best to remain consistent with "boogeyman," but I have to put <laughs> on a fake American accent to do it, which is a, a bit cringe. Right, listen, I've talked enough. This book is a is a novelty. It is intriguing. It's a bit of a unique one-off. So, 
over to you. Tell us what we need to know about chasing the boogeyman before we start. Oh boy, I'll try to I'll try to give you the the shortest, most concise version I can. It's what I found is it's kind of difficult to uh, describe. You know, uh, the, the origin of the book is I've, I've I've always wanted to write a book set in my hometown. I grew up in a in a small working class town called Edgewood, Maryland. You know, loved growing up there. It was uh, if you've ever seen that series, The Wonder Years. It was kind of like that. Uh, you know, just a great place to grow up. Skateboarding, biking, you know, trading baseball cards, fishing. The whole you know the whole nine yards. But it also kind of had a dark side to it. Edgewood had a wrong side of the tracks and uh, it was a military town. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of families that moved through that kind of didn't allow them to set down roots. You know, that wasn't the case on the street where I grew up. You know, the guys I knew, I, I knew, you know, from the time I moved there when I was four years old. So the bottom line with the book is uh, right after I graduated from college, um, I was engaged and uh, there was nine months until my wedding. And it didn't make sense to uh, to go out and get a place to live. So I moved back home for nine months and I lived with my parents in the house I grew up in, in the bedroom I grew up in. And it was a really strange dynamic because at that time I was I had started Cemetery Dance. I was working on the first issue of the magazine. I was writing short stories every day and I was living under the same roof with my parents again. So it was just a, it was a strange push and pull between adulthood and still being, uh, you know, kind of a teenager, even though I was, you know, 20, I just turned 22. And at the time there was, there was a series of break-ins in the town and where uh, an unknown male breaking into homes and he was caressing women while they were sleeping, their hair or their legs or their arms. I mean, creepy stuff. And, and when they woke up, he would take off. And, and he did this over like 25, 30 times. And I just remember the town kind of, you know, there was a real sense of panic. You know, people uh, started locking their doors and windows. People started buying extra locks. People started buying, you know, floodlights for their backyard, you know, motion detector, those, that kind of thing. You know, my warped brain always thought and was always waiting for, not hoping for, um, but waiting for, you know, those incidents to escalate to, to violence or maybe even murder. You know, my, in my brain, we, you know, we had a potential serial killer in town. So that's where Chasing the Boogeyman came from. I just, uh, I kind of escalated what was happening and uh, in, interjected myself into the story at that time in my life. And because who knew the town better than I did? And uh, that's that's kind of where uh, where the idea for the book came from. Right. That wasn't short and concise, but that, that's the best I could do today. <laughs> short and concise is overrated. It's an interview program. The more you speak, the, the, the less I have yeah. to. So that's good. Um, but you have opened up all kinds of, cans of worms there we'll proceed through it with some degree of of order um okay but i think yeah i think we are very much on the same lines and the stuff that kind of speaks to you about your book is exactly what spoke to me as well so that's that's uh that's promising let's kick off first of all normally i ask the question about inspirations and where your idea came from you gave us that that's great and we can talk about the uh the fondler in more detail if we have time but the far more pressing issue, I suppose, with this book, rather than where the idea came from, the only question I could open with is how much of this book is true? <laughs> um, yeah, that's the that's the uh, million dollar question. Um, it's interesting because, you know, I opened the book with a section about the town. Um, you know, I, I once I decided I kind of wanted to write this novel in a true crime type format. Um, and I'm a big fan of true crime, um, have read 
tons of books. If, if I was more technologically uh, intelligent, I would, I would be listening to podcasts, but that always is kind of beyond my grasp right now. But I'm a big fan of true crime books, and I like how a lot of them kind of set the table for you. You know, they give you a history of the town. They give you a history of the major players. And, and you kind of once you get into the meat of the crime at hand, you know, you you almost feel like a part of the town. You almost feel like a townsperson. And uh, so that's I, I opened the book talking about the history of Edgewood and very briefly and then a much longer section uh, about my childhood and growing up in Edgewood, kind of trying to. You know, trying to show the reader that, you know, up until a certain age when I left for college, this this was my world. The town's boundaries kind of formed the uh, the curve in the globe for me. And, uh, you know, I didn't stray very far um, during those early years. So uh, everything in that early section is pretty much true. You know, every once in a while I threw in a zinger just because I kind of wanted to, to keep the reader, you know, off balance. But all the stories of my youth, true, um, use their actual, you know, use my friends, actual names. Um, the history of the town, 98% true, um, threw in a couple other tidbits to, uh, you know, to kind of flavor it up. Um, I, the short version of the answer of this would be everything's true except for the uh, murders and, and the resulting investigation. But even part of the investigation I took from, from real life investigations into similar, similar crimes. So, yeah, the, uh, I, I guess the most honest answer I can give you is when you're not talking about the murders, it's pretty much true. This is an odd thing to say on a horror-inflected podcast. But the murders, for me, were almost incidental to why I like the book so much. Right. I, I could have read just about your life in this small town forever because um, I always wanted a small-town American upbringing. You know, I, I, yeah. I grew up on Stephen King and I grew up on, you know, The Goonies and stuff like that. And I always wanted that exactly that, that life. 14 chasing fireflies, you know, that kind of mythical American yeah, youth. Absolutely. So I, I loved, loved reading that stuff as well. But of course, the murders drive the story. Right. But the follow on question from that then, why tell the story this way? Why did it require this blending, this this really subtle blending of fact and fiction? You know, it was a it was a conscious choice very early on. I mean, I wrote the introduction, you know, sometimes with things I've written, at least I'll almost go back. There, there are several times when I've gone back and wrote, written the introduction or the preface or even that opening chapter um, later, because, you know, the way that the story or the book has kind of shaped itself, it lends itself to a, to a different introduction than when I originally planned. This time, that wasn't the case. I kind of had the idea in my brain uh, writing that introduction almost provided the roadmap for me for what came next. And by the time I was finished with that, I, I had I had the, the clear picture in my mind. I knew I couldn't write it as I originally planned, which was just first person, uh, you know, someone else as the narrator. Um, I, I knew that it, no matter what I did, it was going to be me and it was going to be transparent, so transparent, at least to myself, that uh, that I was writing about myself that I said, you know what, this might make the story a little bit more interesting if I'm telling the truth. Um, you know, that, that, that's something I always try to do is trying to tell the most honest story I can. And even though it's make believe, I'm trying to tell it, you know, uh, as honestly as I can from an integrity, an integrity sense or, a or, a, a emotional sense. And this story, by the time I finished that intro, I just knew I had to tell it as myself. And I kind of had to put my, my own past, you know, out there for people to look at. And, uh, it was, yeah, it was pretty nerve wracking in the beginning. And then besides that, I just, very early on, I, I knew, like I said, I love true crime and I knew 
that I wanted to kind of shape this story like a true crime book with photographs and, and with investigative details and, uh, you know, interview transcripts, that kind of thing. I, I just knew pretty early on that I kind of wanted to play with that format. I like to tell people that I love true crime and I admire the true crime writer so much because the, the dedication and, and the research and, and, you know, the emotional toll it must take on them. So this was kind of my true crime book where I could kind of be lazy and just make it all up instead of having to do <laughs> So. I mean, is it Michelle McNamara? Is way is in the back of all of this. Even to the fa- even to the way that the for me that the cover kind of evokes "I'll Be Gone in the Dark," and you can really right. feel that as the. I suppose that is the game changing piece of true crime fiction, isn't it? You know, um, and, and even in the, the fact that in, in your book, the the truth comes out decades later, as it did right. with the Golden State Killer. So you can feel all that's the background there. Yes. Yeah, I mean, to go to Michelle's Michelle's book, and then there's a book by uh, a true crime writer named James James Renner, who actually wrote the introduction or the preface for uh, Chasing the Boogeyman, um, and I believe his was called True Crime, um, where they really laid themselves out bare, you know, in the telling of the story and and the toll that the story took, and and just the emotional roller coaster that they went through, and and the obsession, and. You know, I, uh, I, I, I definitely wanted to, to explore that. And it was kind of, you know, in a way it was almost a metaphor for my, you know, fascination and obsession with the genre as a whole, because like I said, I was 22 years old. Then I was starting cemetery dance. Um, I was, you know, I was surrounded by horror fiction and suspense thrillers on television and at the movie theater and, and in my reading material every day. And I was fascinated and I tried to explore that in the book too, where it's, you know, does it, is it unhealthy when you're that interested in a series of murders in your own hometown? And I think we all kind of, you know, who make our livings, you know, doing this, you know, on the dark side of humanity, you know, we all kind of have to look in the mirror at times and, and answer that question. So yeah, definitely I'll be gone in the dark is, is just like you said, is, is dead on um, an inspiration for this. The, the only other book I've ever read that does something like this is um, Luna Park by Brett Easton Ellis. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you've read that. I have read it. It's been a while. I've read it when it just came out. Yeah, and I love that book as well in, in the way that he, he blends his, his own reality with this weirdly supernatural situation um, in that right. case. But it's weird that they that they couldn't be two more different books because Brett and Ellis's book is so cold and so right, you know, glossy and bleak in the way that all of his fiction is. Um, whereas your book is incredibly warm. Like this is what I'm saying. Like what, if you take the murders out of it, it is it, in some ways it's just a portrait of an idyllic childhood, isn't it? I think that's where the uh, the Ray Bradbury comparisons have come in and some of the reviews and, and, and a handful of the blurbs. And it's certainly not, you know, the writing because, uh, you know, I can't hold a candle to, to Bradbury. But, yeah, just that that kind of golden hued sense of nostalgia. And that's something that I have to fight in a lot of my stories because, uh, you know, you can certainly overdo it. But I have such fond memories of growing up and of my family and it, you know, by no means was it perfect. Um, and, and maybe that's, that's fodder for, for another book, but, uh, I still, I do, I have really, really fond memories of school and my schoolmates and my, uh, you know, my neighbors and my lifelong friends who I talk about in the book, I'm still friends with them. You know, I was able to pick up the phone and text them or call them and say, Hey, is it okay with you? If I, if you know, you're a character in this book under your real name and, uh, 
you know, so that, that, that was nice. You know, it's interesting because when I was finished, I, I just, you know, I said, I don't know if anyone's going to want to read this. It's crazy. I'm, I'm kind of shocked at myself that I, that I went this route, but it has a lot of heart. So when, when you talk about the warmth of it, that's, that's, uh, that's welcome to my ears because that's that's definitely something I wanted people to take out of that is that there's a lot of heart in in the story. Oh, definitely. And and you mentioned this golden hue, and I, I think if anything sums up the exact flavor of horror that I like, it's when you have a golden hued world in which something horrible takes place. <laughs> right. So that had never hit me before. That's exactly the phrase that I I would use to describe my 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 exact tastes in horror so yeah i'm going to use that in future i think it was richard matherson who said you know uh, a lot of his stories and, and i could be wrong about that but i think it was him um you know about uh ordinary people who experience extraordinary events and and those are my favorite kind of stories that's that's what made me fall in love with stephen king way back as a as a young teenager and you just like you referenced earlier you know the small towns the everyday people and you know, then the, the, the dark side that lurks behind the closed doors and curtained windows and the, the people who are smiling and, and pulling out of your, uh, you know, your next door neighbor's dry, uh, driveway, but they're wearing masks and underneath there is, is a monster. Um, that's, that's always what appealed to me, even, you know, in my crime fiction and my short fiction, um, you know, because that's, that's the real world. And that's, that's kind of what has always appealed to me there. And that's what, mm-hmm. it, it, to me, it's terrifying. You know, you never know. The guy next door to you may seem like a saint and he may be, he may be wearing that mask. Yeah, well, it's all great horror fiction. It kind of turns on that axis, doesn't it, I suppose? Um, you, you mentioned Stephen King and it, it, it would be easy to allow Stephen King to kind of loom large and overwhelm this conversation because you, your, your life and your work kind of intersects with his so much. And we we will come to some of that. But the one thing that comes to mind with King is that he once wrote that fiction is the truth inside the lie. Right. I love that quote. It's a beautiful way to describe the, I don't know, the benign deceit of storytelling, I suppose. Yes. Yes. And it seems to me that Chasing the Boogeyman is the perfect manifestation of that sentiment the truth inside the lie, because whilst the murders, for want of a better word, the plot is a fabrication, a lie, it seems to me to be one singular strand amongst numerous human truths. Right. Truths either of your life in particular or of the human experience in general. This book's consumed with with love and grief and death and boyhood and coming of age and, and all of those things. And... When you were writing it, was there kind of a split brain thing where you had to write with great truth and authenticity about one side of the story and then switch to the the artificial for the other? Um, you know, what's interesting is once I fell that, you know, once I fell so deeply into the story, it all blended together. And, and that's not to say that I woke up and I was writing about the second murder and I I believed it really happened, but when I was tapping away at the keyboard, I probably, there was a part of me who probably did believe it happened because, you know, I had the character sketches for each of the girls who were murdered. I knew them, you know, in my mind's eye, I knew them in real life. Um, you know, I had their photographs, I had their faces in front of me. 
and, and, and I also knew their place in the town and knew their place within the, the townspeople. So in, in that way, it, it enabled it to kind of be seamless in my mind, at least. And hopefully, hopefully it will read that way for people because I, I love the, uh, I, I love the analogy and it may be Steve King or it may be someone else who, who said this, but some stories come fully formed. And, and I think I talk about this maybe in the afterward and, mm-hmm. and you're not so much, you're not so much creating them as you are revealing them, you know, brushing away the sand and the particles away from the story and exposing it. And that's what this story felt like. And, and it came very quickly. And after a brief period of self-doubt in the beginning, it, it came very, you know, fairly easily. And uh, it was just a joy to write. And, and again, that sounds horrible to say, but the murders were made up. If they were if they were real, it wouldn't have been a joy to write. But I was the one making them. I was the one who was able to say, oh, the, the body was found here. And 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 in that regard, it it, uh, it was just all a piece of the same puzzle for me. So, yeah, it felt very seamless, the writing of it. Well, a linked question then, I suppose. Sure. Like, in terms of the authorial voice, there's a naivety to mm-hmm. the, the Richard, the rich Chismar in the novel. You know, there is a naivety and a, an innocence. Um, how do I ask this question? Um what I suppose I'm asking is, if in reality you had been involved in such circumstances, would the real flesh and blood Richard Chismar have written and reacted in the same way that Richard Chismar, the character, does in this book? How much is he a character and how much is he your best estimation of who you would have been and were at that time? That's a great question. And I, and I think the answer um, is I, I would have reacted pretty darn closely to, to how I, uh, you know, how I present myself in the book. I think there would have been that struggle because there would have been an intense fascination on my part, an intense curiosity, um, obviously uh, an overt sense of horror that this was happening and sorrow you know, I, I hate attending funerals, but I would have been there because these were my people. Like I said in there, you know, uh, even though some of the victims I only knew through other people um, in a small town, everyone's family. You know, I just for instance, I just played a round of golf with we had four foursomes with 15 other guys who grew up in Edgewood and went to the same school as me. And I, I just did this last weekend and had a, had a, had a blast. And it, it's, you know, it's one of those, one of those instances where you, you can kind of just totally be yourself, even though you haven't seen some of these guys in many years, because you all came from the same place. Y'all know each other. Um, here I am talking y'all. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think I would have, you know, in all, in all honesty, I probably would have been even a little bit more proactive than the character I wrote about in the book. Um, I say that, but I, I'm not sure, you know, it's hard to look back at 22 and, but I, I've, I've always had that kind of sense of, of, of being a little bit naive. And I've, I've always, the way I've always described it is I've always been a believer, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I wrote this, if I've ever told the story in print or not, but a book that I, uh, wrote, uh, by myself, that was a sequel to something I wrote with Stephen King called Gwendy's magic feather. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the eight year old or whatever, you know, nine year old kid who bought that magic feather from a bunch of other kids for like all the change in my pocket. And, uh, my sisters made fun of me for years for doing that. And, uh, when that book came out, I slapped it down in front of him. I said, ha how do you know the, the feather wasn't magic after all? You know, I've always been the kid who believes in Bigfoot and, you know, I wrote about Bigfoot in the book. So yeah, I've always, and I, and I think that that's why I do what I do for a living. 
people are kind of tickled that I still get so scared watching uh, scary movies. Um, but my oldest son, Billy, and I, you know, he's 22 years old right now. We're, we're both big chickens. You know, we, we tend to sit very close to each other on the sofa when the lights are out and there's a scary movie on. Um, when the lights are on and we're watching a ball game, you know, he's over in one seat and I'm in another. But, yeah, I, I think it plays into uh, how I look at the world and, and, and what I do to, uh, to make a living that, that I've always kind of had that, that sense of being naive. And uh, I believe in the, in, the, in the things that go bump in the night. Well, yeah, I mean, so do I. I pretend to be an arch rationalist by day and then I sit there thinking all the worst things when the sun goes down, completely the same. I think naivety is sometimes treated as a as, as too negative a thing. I think innocence and naivety should be curated a little bit more than they are. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because like my, my youngest son, Noah, who's 18, he'll watch the same movie with us. And, and when it's finished, you know, Billy and I will be like, you know, sighing with relief. And Noah's like, that was dumb. And we just shake our heads and we're like, that's because your imagination is, isn't as big as ours. Noah and Billy are very different from each other. You know, Billy is definitely cut in the same cloth that, that I was made in. And, and Noah is very much like his mom, who is very practical and, 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 look at th- and looks at things with a whole lot less sense of, of immediate belief. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me to hear that you're the same way that I yeah. am. You're describing my marriage. I think I've said this on air a few times, but essentially I, my marriage is, is split in a very simple dynamic. If we hear a noise in the night, we're both terrified. She thinks it's burglars. <laughs> I think it's ghosts. <laughs> that is the way that we operate. That's funny. You mentioned in, in reality, you may have been more proactive had this situation arisen in reality. And it struck me that the ending of the novel is kind of by necessity quite passive. Right. I won't say how it ends, only that you deny yourself the chance to be the all-solving hero. Right. Were you tempted to give yourself a more direct role in the resolution? Yeah, that, uh, that's another really good question that no one's asked me yet. And, and the answer is yes, absolutely. I, uh, I had a couple chapters outlined where I was and, and Carly, uh, the character Carly Albright, where uh, both by myself and, and in partnership with her, where we did, did some more digging of our own. And uh, the fear was that it would become a little bit too much like, you know, a Hardy Boys slash Nancy Drew book. Um, so yeah, I did avoid that temptation. It would have been fun. I, I, I think I easily could have written another 30,000 words uh, of that because I do think that there is a part of me that, that would have done that. There's a part of me, you know, maybe not at 22, maybe at 16, uh, because I would have had my friends all around me and we would have probably done this as a team. But yeah, at 22, I, I still think I probably would have done a bit more. But yeah, I decided to keep that out of the book for those reasons. But uh, that's a really good question. And, and, it, and it makes me smile because I, I just think about how much fun I would have had, you know, doing that. Because I reference in the book again, you know, you, you know, when you're a kid and, and this is something that comes out in Stephen King's fiction and, and, and other writers also. Um, but when you're a kid, you no know, kind of no one knows when you when you grow up in a small town. No one knows that town as well as the, the kids. You know, they know where the shortcuts are. They know what dumpsters hold what. They know what house you might hear a, a woman crying after dinner because the husband drank too much and smacked her. 
you know, that kind of thing. They, they tend to see and hear things that, that a lot of grownups don't because they're in different places at different times. And uh, that was a big part of the book for me. So, yeah, it was tempting to have 22 year old me, you know, sneaking around the hedges and kind of doing my own thing. But I, I kind of like I said, I kind of put that in, in the trash can. Well, I mean, it certainly ups the authenticity factor because it reads much more like an actual true crime story would read with a, you know, passive, almost almost accidental resolution. Um, kudos for, for having the balls to stick to that. But what that actually makes me think, actually, is you go to such lengths to create this illusion. So you've got these images that you stage. You even go so far as to get James Renner the, the, the true crime writer that you mentioned earlier, right. he writes a, a foreword supporting the illusion that this is all real. But then you include a note to readers right at the start that admits that it's fiction. Right. Why the concession? Why not go full Blair Witch? Uh, well, you know what? That is the exact term I used, and that is that was the initial idea. I wanted to completely Blair Witch this incident. Um Scared my son to death because when he got to the end of the first draft um, or, or an early draft and I told him what I wanted to do, he's like, Dad, you can't do that. You're going to get sued. You know, you can't. You, you know, you, you talk about too much of the real edge wood. You're going to make property values go down <laughs> and uh, on and on. And I just said, Billy, don't worry about it. I said at that time, you know, I said, I don't know whether 50 people will read this or 50,000 people will read this. I have no idea. I said, it's such a crazy idea. I hadn't even showed it to my agent or even told her about it. But yeah, I, uh, I wanted to do that. And uh, the answer to your question about that, about three things, a novel being on the front cover, the um, statement that's at the front of the book, and also the afterward, um, they were all kind of the publisher's idea to, to make sure that, that this was clear. Um, I, I had several conversations with Simon & Schuster's lawyers um, they wanted to make sure that anyone mentioned in the book, you know, was was either fictional or I had their permission. I, I have a I have a complete folder of permission forms signed by my friends and photographers and and, and actors and and the whole thing um, just to cover my butt and to cover their butts. Um, but, yeah, I wanted to Blair Witch it. I wanted to make this thing real. I wanted to plant some stuff on the Internet. I wanted to have a, a kind of an old looking you know website on there and some articles. Um, I want Billy and I talked about doing a documentary kind of like they did for Blair Witch. Yeah. Um, setting it up and using a lot of the same actors from the photographs in the documentary and, uh, and even interviewing myself. Um, and we still may do something like that for fun. But uh, before the idea appealed to me is I, I wanted to Blair Witch as many people as I could, but yeah, that, that went out the window very quickly after we, sold it and got the deal <laughs> such a shame because I, I love stuff like that I, I love that full immersion um yeah ah well I mean what I will say is and and this I am not blowing smoke up your ass this I genuinely mean this as I was reading it there were several times that I literally forgot that it was fiction oh good good thank you yeah several people mentioned that they uh that they would stop and they would google yes um, one of one of the victim's names or one of the incidents. And, um, you know, several people Googled, Googled Edgewood, Maryland, so they knew it was real. And, and yeah, even in the Goodreads reviews, which, uh, which I haven't read in a while, but in the beginning I couldn't help it, even though everyone's like, don't read Goodreads reviews. Hmm. Um, several people said the same thing. They're like, I had to stop and Google it, you know, and it was like the third or fourth time they did that where they finally got that it wasn't, 
you know, real. And, and, you know, at that time, at the last time I had looked at them, um, I think there was only one person who was mad when they got to the end and found out it, it all wasn't true, but you know, what can I do? I, I, I would have liked to, to have made a lot of people mad and upset when they found out it wasn't true, just like Blair Witch did, but that wasn't to be, and I understand why. Yeah. It's, it's a shame, but nonetheless, you can still enjoy the illusion thoroughly. We will move on. I've been asking you a lot of questions about, about truth and fiction and, and the boundaries. So let's finish up this segment of the conversation with a bit more of a lighthearted touch. Sure. It would be really easy to turn this conversation into, into a repetitive sequence of questions in which I just say to you, was this real? Was this real? Yeah. Was this real? And we won't do that because that is going nowhere fast. We'll just do it with two different things. Okay. Two things that I had to make notes of because I thought I've got to ask them. <laughs> I've got to ask. And if you say neither of them, that's fine, but I will be disappointed. Right. First of all, the lesser of the two, did your friend really take a crap in his own hand and throw it at his brother? Yeah, that is the uh <laughs> that is the most commonly asked, is it true? My uh my oldest sister texted me late one one evening. Um and said, did Brian and Craig really, did Craig really do that to Brian? And I'm like, yes, yes, he really, he really did. I, it all went down just the way I described it. And it's, uh, it's a legendary act that we still talk about to this day when we all get together and, and people shake their heads and some of them don't believe me, but I'm like, no, I, I understand why you don't believe me. I, I was there. I saw it with my own two eyes. I was in all then I'm in all now. And, um, it happened right in the middle of a busy road in front of my house too. It's just epic. I mean, it is the full nuclear option, that isn't it? Jesus Christ. Well, they were they were just uh, if I, if if there's ever a movie version of this, and, and they decide to do those scenes from the past, they're going to have fun casting those two brothers because uh, you know uh, the younger brother Craig is no longer with us, but the older brother Brian, I just texted with him this morning, and he's around and. At, at age 54, he's finally grown up. But uh, growing up with those two was was just every day was a, was a carnival. Yeah, sounds it. I had friends so like true. that, but they never went quite that far. That, that is excellent. <laughs> I've, I've never heard of anyone other than like monkeys <laughs> at the zoo. I've never heard of anyone doing that. The second one I'm going to ask you about, and I really hope this is based in truth because I love people's personal ghost stories. There is a local legend in in the Edgewood in your novel of the rubber band man. Rubber band man's true. Did you actually see some kind of long-legged creep from the playground? I did. It was a different, you know, I don't want to give too much of that away, but it was, it happened under a different setting. Those, those tubes, those like kind of submarine tubes in the playground that I described, those are real and, and existed right down the street from my house at, at one of the, uh, I think the Methodist church. We used to always go down there and play. Um, the real incident happened outside of a basketball court at Edgewood Elementary School, um, which is right by the middle school and the high school. And I, I was there one evening alone and uh, I swear to you, that's what I saw. But again, my imagination was this gigantic thing that kind of enveloped me at times. So whether it was real or not, I don't know, but I got the heck out of there. And, and um, yeah, so so it's it's that's one of those stories where it's half it's half truth. It's half legend. And uh, I kind of melded it all into one. But uh, the rubber band man I first heard about from my sister's 
So I knew it had to be real because when, you know, I, I am, there's a big, there's a large gap between me and my youngest sister. I think there's seven years. So when your older and wiser sisters who aren't afraid of anything are talking about this with kind of uh, hushed tones and, and you're, you know, probably six years old, the first time you hear about them, yeah, you're automatically scarred for life and scared to death of this thing. Yeah. It's, it's a brilliant scene from the, from the book. It kind of sits as a little kind of side note, but it, it chilled the hell out of me. And there's, a, I mean, we won't go into it now because it's, it's too, I don't want to give it away, but there's another great sequence in this book, a kind of nested short story called The House of Mannequins. Mm, yeah. When people le- read that, that will leave them with some images. What's funny is I, I, I always thought that my hometown story would be this big fat horror novel. Um, coming of age, you know, it would be like it or boy's life or, or Dan Simmons summer and night. Um, and it just happened that again, I kind of just follow the story where it takes me. So it happened to be the chasing the boogeyman, this, this more crime oriented, uh, nostalgic type of a book. But those scenes that you reference were kind of my, me having fun because when we grew up, you know, I tried to, I tried to kind of get that point across that every small town has their wrong side of the tracks. Every small town has that their haunted house, or their, uh, their location where, you know, things went bad. And, um, I, you know, I use the real thing from, from my childhood and, and my growing up because they, they were scary enough and they, you know, they, those, those are the things that kind of fueled my dreams and my daydreams. So it, it was a lot of fun to share them with everybody. So when you were writing your version of Edgewood, when, well, when I was reading it, I found it really difficult not to kind of interpose Stephen King's Derry or, you know, to give it its real name, Bangor, Maine. Right, right. Because obviously he did he did a similar job of romanticizing his city in in It, which you just mentioned. Now my listeners have just collectively groaned because I mention It every week. It's my favorite book. Um, <laughs> and that's okay. That's my all time favorite book. So there you go. You're amongst friends, but I get yeah, criticized I, by from certain quarters of people who say, "Yeah, move on from It every week." You know. That's um, all right. So instead, let me throw another idyllic small town at you, because you already mentioned the author, Ray Bradbury's Greentown, Illinois. How much were Greentown and and Derry kind of, and other assorted places, how much were those, you know, mythical American small towns and inspiration for how you wrote about yours? Um, I think, yeah, undeniably huge inspirations to, to, you know, uh, how I kind of molded chasing the boogeyman, but, um, but at the same time, you know, Edgewood is, is, uh, very much like that. I, I mean, Derry, you know, Derry is a cursed place. So, you know, when I, when I think about Derry, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of warmth there. It, it's, it's a cold alien place, but on the outside, it's still shaped like, you know, a suburban working town. Um, just with this nasty canal running through it, you know, Bradbury's town are a little bit the other side where there's, there's very little darkness. Uh, you know, um, I just tried to, I tried to write it through my eyes as the guy who grew up there. And and again, that was, I've, I've said this, these words a few times, but it was, it was writing. It was really easy in the creative sense. You know, I didn't have, I didn't run into a lot of speed bumps and I, and I say easy and I'm going to jinx myself and I'm going to knock on my desk right now. Um, everything that comes after is going to be hell. Um, but it, it just, it really was like stepping into a time machine, an analogy I use a lot and going back to, to my childhood and then my young adulthood there when I moved back home and 
letting the story out, uncovering it, like I said. And and the words I was referencing that I said I've used before is that at times it almost felt self-indulgent because it was so much fun. Um, and, you know, for instance, my parents, you know, I lost my mom back in 2001. My father's been gone since 2007. Um, but for the for the months that I wrote this book, they were alive. They were happy. Um, I was living under the same roof with them. Um, I was eating my mom's cooking. I was out in the garage talking to my father and, and that's wonderful. You know, that, that, uh, again, that was a joy. And the same thing with the friends I grew up with, even though I'm close with, with, with most of them still to this day, you know, we're scattered all over the place. Brian Anderson lives in West Virginia. Jimmy Cavanaugh lives in South Carolina. Um, a lot of the other guys, some of the guys I talk about in the book, I played golf with two weeks ago. So some of them are close by, but most aren't. Um, so yeah, when I was writing the book, and, you know, you were asking about the town and I'm kind of talking about all of it in one bowl. It, it, it really was writing it as honestly as I could through the eyes of, of, you know, myself at that time. So, yeah, the town, even though it takes inspiration from Derry and Castle Rock, and it's probably more Castle Rock than Derry, um, it, uh, it's undeniably Edgewood, you know, um, and, and that's that's kind of, you know, why it'll always be special to me. It's, it's my place. Well, you've brought me perfectly to ask you about my favourite aspect of, of the book. But it's a difficult one to pin down. I've struggled there to articulate what I mean and what it is I loved. But you write about the bridge between boyhood and young manhood. And and that distinguishes you from a lot of coming-of-age fiction, which, you know, kids are, you know, 13 to 16. You're 22 right. in this book. Now, to, right. set up, to set up my next question, if you don't mind, I'm going to briefly read a short paragraph um, from the book. I do this sure. sometimes so my listeners can get a sense. And this, this stands out. This stands for a lot of what I'm about to ask you about. You wrote, there's a moment, um, it's, it's, it's winter and you're standing outside your house and, and, and you write this. Standing there in that frozen moment of space and time, I realised how vast the world around me really was. And how one day soon I'd be leaving this place I'd always called home to venture out on my own. My friends would be scattered to the four winds and some I would never see or talk to again. Our parents and brothers and sisters would grow old and eventually we'd have to say goodbye to them. Nothing would ever be the same. Now, going back to that thing about the truth inside the lie, I've never read anything, and this includes Stephen King, that has nailed that feeling of being still young, but already feeling that life is seeping away. And it's a recurrent theme in this novel that some that, that something is already on the verge of being lost, even as you're still starting your life. Yeah. And it's exactly how I felt this kind of almost pretentious nostalgia for a past that is like five minutes ago, but it feels like a different life. Why is that? such a theme underpinning this novel based on the questions you've been asking me you're like uh the ideal reader for this book because you've really hit on you've really hit on the uh i don't want to say the most important but you've hit on the most personal the most uh you know, I can't, I'm at a loss for words. I've never heard that section read, read out loud before. And it actually almost choked me up um, because it's real that what that happened to me. And, and that, that is, and until this book, I never wrote about it. And I, and I, and I've told a very small handful of people about that moment. Um, 
you know, to answer your question, you know, why I, I think it, inf- I think that sense that you just described uh, that sense of melancholy and understanding it, it, I think it's infused most of my work. Um, before I started writing novels, I, I remember I'd be asked often about, you know, is there any kind of central theme into your, in your stories? And, and the answer I always gave was, well, if there is, it's that life can change on a dime, you know, life can, can, uh, you know, can, can just absolutely pivot on, on the drop of a dime and, uh, and not always for the better often, you know, most likely not for the better. And, and I think a lot of that came from, from how I grew up in, in which I did experience a lot of loss. I did experience, I used to say that the Chismars were like the Kennedys, um, <laughs> without the money and the sexual, uh, you know, um, um, scandal, you know, because we experienced a lot of tragedy. There was a lot of loss in, in, in our family and connected family and friends. And uh, yeah, you know, once once you experience that, you tend to wait for the other shoe to drop. And I'm a very positive, optimistic, kind of a big kid. Um, but I've always walked around with that sense. And I've always walked around with a sense of melancholy where if, even from a very early age, you know, Christmas Eve mass, you know, excited about Santa Claus and, and, you know, and the gifts the next day and hoping it's going to snow and hoping I'm going to see Santa sleigh on, on the ride home from, from midnight mass. But I was always that kid who realized that there was a lot of people, there was a lot of sad people sitting in that church. Um, and probably because it was Christmas Eve and they were alone or they were estranged from their family. It was, you know, those, those early thoughts are what made me believe that I probably one day would be a writer just because I, I felt like I, saw and heard things a little bit differently than, than, than many of my friends. Um, but yeah, the, the, uh, that, that moment that you, that you describe and that you read, I, I, you know, I've never forgotten it. I'm, and, and I wish at the time I was like, what the hell, Rich, why do you have to feel that? You know, you, you just had this great night of sledding and you're going to go home and eat and take a, a hot shower and get in your pajamas and, and watch a movie. And instead you're sitting here thinking about, you know, how nothing's ever going to be the same again, but that was me. And, uh, that's kind of how I walked through life and it, it, things would hit me like that every once in a while. Um, you know, I saw a meme recently that floored me and, and then I kind of had to laugh because I'm like, you know, I, I'm surprised you're, you know, you're not the one who wrote the thing, but it said something to the effect of at some point in our youth or in our childhood, we all got together outside and played for one last time. Because it's never, you know, there's not an announcement that goes with that last wiffle ball game that you play with your childhood friends, you know, or that last uh, kickball game or the last time you all sleep over at someone's house and sneak out at night and walk through the neighborhood. There's no there's no sense of finality there. It just happens. And, yeah, I read that meme and it struck me that, oh, my God. And then I just thought, yeah, well, I'm surprised you didn't write the thing. So. So, yeah, that's another great question. And it kind of caught me by surprise because. uh you know, when I read King's The Body and he talks about seeing the deer and he says, I've never talked about it or written about it until now. That was my scene there where I'm sitting there with my my sled under my arm and, and the snow's falling and the hush is over the land. And I'm seeing the lights, the distant lights in the houses and uh, the realization just kind of enveloped me. And, and it was a big thing for for a teenager to feel those things. Yeah. No, I, I, it just spoke to me so profoundly. And it's funny that you mentioned The Body because that's another book that did the same. And it, it's an interesting counterpoint because in The Body, which for those who don't know, was the original story that became the film Stand By Me, um, there's, there's a line in which one of the characters says, 
I never, well, the narrator says, I never had friends like I did when I was 13. Christ, does anybody? And, right. and I, to link that to what you're doing in your book, I think I used to walk around with this romanticized idea of what youth should be. And I used to kind mm. of, I wanted that, that blood brother bond with my friends back then. And I remember when I, when I went to my, what would have been the equivalent of my school prom, and I, I left and I was never going to school again. You know, that, that was it. We'd, we'd gone. It was on to bigger and better things at university. And I remember going home and being really sad and that melancholy feeling of, but almost craving the melancholy. And then yeah. I remember oh. feeling like no one else around me feels this way. And I wanted yeah. to be part of that American graffiti, you know, stand by me life where everyone is that heightened level of emotion and no one ever was. And I used to, I basically I used to walk around cursed with romance, you know, <laughs> romantic view of life and your book Absolutely. just encapsulates that that feeling of of warm yet lonely melancholy yeah it's uh really spoke to me thank you yeah and i mean and that's that's the part that i talk about when i when i talk about you know just trying to tell it as honestly as i could because you know some people are going to read that and roll their eyes and 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 be like oh you know uh so dramatic but you know what I, it's just the way I looked at the world and the way I saw and heard things. And, and I'm not alone. You know, you just said that yourself. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it it's, uh, it, that's the interesting thing for me. It was like you talked about earlier. It was, it was telling this story of, of warmth and humanity. Um, that was, you know, kind of, uh, stitched with this series of murders and, and not only myself, but the town that I grew up in kind of losing their innocence together. Um, and uh and, and dealing with it the best they can yeah well it feels like we've gone as far as we can into the book there really so i think i'll, I'll ask you about a few other ventures in your sure. in your creative life before we finish because there's yeah i think th- i think we've peaked there with what we can say about chasing the boogeyman but yeah no that, that's, God, those are great questions and, and great points i appreciate it <laughs> thank you right so to be honest Whilst reading this book, for horror fans, one of the added treats is this kind of behind-the-scenes glimpse of how you started up Cemetery Dance, which is your your magazine and now your publishing empire. I, are you still heavily involved with all that stuff? Um, not as much as I, not nearly as much as I was. Um, you know, in the beginning, it was just me, and then it was me and Kara, and then you know. Um, Mindy came back from college and, and helped us for a while. And then she, you know, did her own thing and then she came back again. And then, you know, a series of part-timers and then Brian Freeman. And, uh, you know, it grew to the point where it, you know, initially it was run out of a college apartment, then a, you know, a normal apartment, then a garage, then a basement. And now we have, you know, two big warehouses. We have office space and we have a full-time staff and and a series of part-timers and freelancers. So, I spent my twenties, you know, working 18 hour days or 16 hour days, seven days a week, um, making tons of mistakes and, and making no money at all. Um, and, and then probably in the year, you know, eight, nine, 10, we kind of started clicking and, and, uh, being able to publish more profitable books and, and, and expanding some. So I have gone to the point where I was working every day, seven days a week to where now I go into the office a couple of days a week for a very short amount of time. And I work from home and, and I kind of leave the business dealings up to, uh, to, uh, Brian and Mindy and the, and the crew. Well, I mean, over, over the years though, you must've discovered some, some serious names. Does, does anyone come to mind that you're kind of proud to have published in their infancy? 
You know, I mean, that's the thing. We've been around for a long time. So, you know, the horror show to me was the one that did that. The horror show to me was the one that 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 kind of, you know, published the Bentley Littles and the Joe Lansdales and the uh, Elizabeth Massey's and Poppy Bright and all of them in the very beginning. Um, you know, we were fortunate. We, we published a whole lot of Ronald Kelly, a whole lot of uh, a guy named Norman Partridge who doesn't write nearly as much as he mm-hmm. should. Um, Gary Brombach. A lot of writers, you know, published the bulk of their early fiction in Cemetery Dance. So that that's always neat, you know, and we published Norman Partridge's first novel, Slipping Into Darkness. And uh, yeah, it's uh, my idea for Cemetery Dance from the beginning was to kind of package newer writers alongside the the more established guys, because I knew from the beginning that that's how we were going to uh, gain an audience. You know, um, the idea of publishing all newer writers is is really appealing and, and, and very honorable. But uh, it's 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 that's a tougher road to hoe uh, as far as getting people to, you know, open their wallets and, and just buy fiction from brand new guys. So mm-hmm. I was always intrigued by combining those those groups. I mean, one of my favorite things you've ever done is um, the Dark Screams anthologies. Mm-hmm. I just there's some of my some some of the novellas I've read in those are just fantastic. I've always loved them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and Brian Freeman gets a ton of credit for that. Yeah. You know? Um, you talk about nostalgia and I miss the, the early days of cemetery dance when, you know, it was just a different world then, you know, there was no internet. So, so having the printed page in front of you like that was, was held a different, you know, kind of significance. And, and, yeah. uh, I miss those days in a lot of ways. People ask me for advice now on publishing and I'm like, it's so different than when I, I spent the bulk of my twenties stuffing envelopes with, with flyers and mailing it and putting stamps on postcards and you know because that's how we marketed back then is it was all direct mail now everything is the internet and it's in in many ways it's so much easier and in many ways it's so much more competitive and difficult so yeah i some i i miss the innocence but that's again you get that out of out of my books (laughs) yeah i get that yeah and i i still think and this isn't a thing where i'm prejudiced against digital because obviously there's no point being these days you know but I right. still feel like the internet has made, I think it is still making art in all its forms trivial in a way that something physical doesn't. That doesn't, that doesn't mean, that is not to say in any way that the actual art itself is trivial, but I think right. there's a trivializing effect of digitalization. Maybe it's just me, but if I can hold a book in my hand I care more about it than the book on my Kindle. I think that's spot on. I think that's how most people feel, but uh, you know, the, the practical side comes into it. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I'm grateful for the digital side of things. It's just, uh, it's, it's complicated things and it's, and it's, it's certainly made it a much larger pool to, to try to get noticed in. Yeah. Well, two last questions and these are both linked to the uh, to, to Mr King who has loomed large over this conversation right. um obviously you you collaborated with him on Gwendy's button box a few years ago and then you did the magic Gwendy's magic feather and then you're coming back I believe next year with Gwendy's final task and that's another collaboration am I right right yeah yes yeah in February that'll be simply put I mean in in this book in itself in chasing the boogeyman you know you talk about sitting in the, in a hammock reading Stephen King, you, you, you talk about how, you know, he impacted you as a, as a young writer, as he did most people of kind of my generation and yours. What was it like to collaborate with him? 
Oh, um, you know, the, the, the stock answer I always give is I, I would say it was a dream come true, but I never dreamt that big. And I'm from day one, I've been a huge dreamer. You know, I did dream of one day publishing Stephen King short story. I did dream of one day opening up a box and there being a novel manuscript from Stephen King in there. I never dreamt of writing with him, never in a million years. Um, so you know, I guess that's, that's the long winded answer. The short answer is it was amazing. You know, um, it was, it, it was dreamlike. And, and in the beginning before I, you know, I've told this story a lot, but it, it's true. It's a true story. You know, once I knew we were going to take a stab at writing Gwendy's button box together, but before I started um, a, a long weekend, it was terrifying because I remember being elated. Holy crap, this is going to be great. And then I remember when it kind of, sunk in and I thought I can't do this. And, and there was, it was just, yeah, sheer terror for, uh, for two and a half days until I kind of finally sat down and, and put pen to paper. So, so I mean, it, it, a wonderful experience <laughs> in a tenuous way. Gwendy's button box certainly is, is linked to kind of King's multiverse. So you've got like the, the villain is, is Richard Farris, you know, those RF initials that recur all the way through his fiction and, and, you know, there's a certain tower looming in the background. Did you feel intimidated or personally restricted or, you know, by his mythology? I never felt restricted at all. Um, I felt intimidated. You know, what's interesting is I, I sat down, you know, he it was a Thursday when Steve and I emailed and texted about collaborating and, and round robins. And, and somehow this came out of it. And then and he mentioned that he had a story. And then it was that next morning, that Friday morning that he sent it. And um, I remember I read it, uh, the first part of it, what he had, you know, the first pages that he had written himself. I, I read the first part of those in a parking lot on my telephone. And right in the first or second sentence, it, it's, you know, it's clear that the story is in Castle Rock. And I, mm. my head started spinning. But that was elation. That was excitement because Castle Rock is, you know, that's the holy grail there. And even though Derry's mine, because it is my favorite book, still Castle Rock is 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 Stand by Me or, or the Body and, and so many others. Um, so initially, yeah, it, it, I just felt elation. Um, never felt restricted. And then with the second book, with Gwendy's Magic Feather, I certainly felt a sense of a huge sense of responsibility to do justice to his to his world, um, and definitely some intimidation where it was. Um, don't mess this up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you write movies now. And I read an interview recently with you in which you said the two books you'd most want to adapt would be Kings from a Buick 8 and Robert McCammon's Boy's Life. Yeah. Please tell me, are either of those looking likely? You know, we uh, from a Buick 8 is going to happen, but it's not going to happen with me. Um Unfortunately, we, uh, I don't even remember how many years ago it is now, but, uh, uh, a childhood friend of mine named Jonathan Sheck, who moved out to Hollywood and, and became a, a big actor. He was in that thing you do with Tom Hanks and hush with Gwyneth Paltrow and lots of big movies. Um, and he's still out there acting. I mean, he lives in Nashville now, but we grew up two blocks away from each other and just happened to both be involved in the creative world. But, um, long story short, we started writing together. We had a, you know, we had one episode of Masters of Horror produced. We had a couple episodes of a horror series on CBS called uh, Fear Itself produced. Um, a couple of independent movies, 
And one of our earliest projects was uh, Steve was kind enough to option us from a Buick 8. You know, what I love about that story is it is it it is very like so many of Steve's stories, um, but particularly like the like Shawshank and the Green Mile and Stand By Me, the body. It was a story that it, it the poster would have been golden hued. Let's put it that way. It would have been it would have had those golden slants of sunlight like the Green Mile did on Tom Hanks's face on 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 a couple versions of those posters. You're speaking my uh, language, more- Rich. It's one of my favorite of his books because it is so, I always say it's a book about friends. It's a book about family. It just happens to have a haunted car in it. I love that it is just about these people living their well-meaning, hard-working lives with this absolutely eruption of weirdness around them. I, I love that book. I do too. I mean, and I remember I actually... You know, um, I've been fortunate to, to be able to hang out with Steve various times. And, and I was he was actually it was in Florida and he was showing me showed me his house. And then we walked out to the beach and we were walking on the beach. And when I told him how much I appreciated the fact that that he had trusted us with this. And this was when it was still, you know, the script was finished. It was approved and we were trying to set it up. Um, and I told him, I just said, this book will always be special to me. Um, it, it was published shortly after I lost my mother. Um so it became a very personal book to me because it, it, it was a book about finding peace. It was a book about accepting that mm-hmm. all things don't have answers. As he says in the book, if you continue to bang your head against it, you know, eventually you'll, you'll go crazy or you'll die of grief because there are Buicks everywhere. And that struck such a chord with me because losing my mother uh, was a Buick in my life. And for a, for a period of time, I really banged my head against it and didn't understand it. And, and I was finally able to kind of just understand that, you know what, this is what life is like. And, and sometimes you just have to have that acceptance and you have to find your own peace and move on. So that book was always very personal to me. We wrote, uh, you know, a really solid script. I don't, I don't, I, you know, I'm not one of those authors who will ever say, you'll never see me posting or saying, you're going to love this book. You're going to love this movie because hell, I don't know. I'm always terrified you won't. And it's okay if you don't, as long as I like it, that's enough. I'm, I'm never that guy, but I always say that Buick was, was a really strong script, had all the heart of the book was scary, was fantastical. It would be great for a, you know, a monster maker, special effects guy, but that it's like you said, it's really about love and family and grief and moving on. And I felt like John and I did a great job with the script. We came very close several times to getting it made. Um, but it was at the time Stephen King was as not a, as hot as he is now, where he has you know fifteen different things in production, yeah. and we ran into a lot of uh, dead ends where they wanted it to be scarier. They wanted it to be you know, more teenage oriented, even though one of the main characters is a teenager, they wanted more teenagers and they wanted all that. And, and, but I did read recently that it's going to be made. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what they do with it. It's just, will always be a sense of sorrow that we didn't get it made. Yeah. Well, let's hope they do a good job with it, but I think it would have done well in the hands of someone who got that. It's not about the monster in the car. Yeah. I may have stolen your answer here, but I always finish these conversations, Rich, by asking, what if you could recommend one book for my listeners, what would it be and why? It is my favorite book. Um, I have a lot of other books that I love, um, but I'd probably say Boy's Life by McCammon because it's uh, it's a little bit more mainstream. It's a little bit, you know, with it, there's there's the length, there's the the darkness that that uh, 
you know, runs all throughout it and, and some of the subject matter that, that I'd be thinking, ah, you know, who knows whether they would dig that or not. But I, I think people would have a, a lot of difficulty finding uh, any serious issues with boys life. It's it's uh, this I don't know if you've read it or not, but it, to me, it's this very poetically beautiful coming of age story about family and about uh, the power of, of dreaming and, and the imagination. And um, and it's funny. It's hilarious at times. And it's 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 mysterious and it's fantastical and it's got a little bit of everything. And it's it's, uh, you know, even though I'd love to work on the movie, if it ever was such a thing existed, it's one of those few books where it's like, it's okay that it's just a book right now for me. It's because, yeah. you know, I don't want anyone to mess it up. Yeah, it feels like a little kind of um, unspoiled yes. gem, really, that a lot that a lot of people aren't aware of. And, I, and I'm, in a weird way, I'm glad. It's, it's the kind of book that I think people find, you know, when you go to a hotel on holiday and they have like a little like pr- tiny book library, you might take it down. It's one of those books you just find in your life at the right time. I think I've said this before on the show, but it, it remains for me one of the purest most joyful reading experiences of my life because i read it over a long hot weekend sitting on the banks of lake geneva um i was there for a while and um yeah the actual act of reading that book is is tinged with such joy and fondness for me that it will always be close to my heart yeah as it's probably the the book that i've most often gifted to other people is is boy's life so yeah yeah um, last question, Rich, to turn things dark for a second. Sure. What truly scares you? Oh, well, like I said, I am a big chicken and that people are always kind of amused slash shocked to discover that. Um, just last night I was joking, uh, that, you know, I have a big office above the garage and, and I told Billy, I said, Oh, can you run over and do something? You know, I can't remember what it, I don't even remember what it was. And, and my wife kind of looked at me and she said, uh, are you scared to go over there by yourself or something like that? I laughed. I said, I'm not scared of the dark. And she goes, yes, you are. Um, but in, in all seriousness, you know, the things that I'm most scared of at this point are uh, just, you know, losing a family member, something, you know, bad happening to one of the boys or to Kara or one of our dogs or one of our close friends, you know, um, speaking of Edgewood, you know, there's, uh, there's, you know, many people who I'm in touch with, you know, I see them in person or I text or I or email or I talk to them on the phone. And then there's others who, you know, I keep in touch just through social media like Facebook. And there was a, a couple of girls who graduated with us uh, the same year from high school and they lived down in Florida and best friends all throughout life. And um, one of them just passed away of cancer last two nights ago. And uh, yeah, that that, you know, I had to kind of go out and take a walk outside, even though I haven't seen this person in two decades. Um it just, you know, I admired their friendship and respected their friendship uh, online and uh, took a lot of, of warmth from kind of their dedication to each other. And, and now one of them's gone. So, yeah, those kind of things scare me. Those kind of things uh, keep me up at night sometimes. But other than that, I'm, I, I know I'm, I know how fortunate I am, how lucky I am. So I kind of just wake up and do the best I can every day. And, and uh, the outside world doesn't scare me the way it once did. First of all, I'm sorry to hear about your loss. Second, that is a suitably kind of melancholic answer I think, yeah. to, to end this conversation. I've said throughout, I'm going to say it again, I adore this book. I Everyone should go read it because it's something different and it, it's it's a warm bath of a book. Thank you. That has sharp edges. And it's one of my favourites and this has been one of my favourite conversations of the year. So, Mine too. Richard Chismar, thank you for talking scared.
Thank you. I've had so many conversations on this show that I've loved with people who have really become friends. I mean, I mean, Jeremy Robert Johnson and John Langan way back at the start, Beth Clift and VL Valentine, and let's not forget my best mate, Josh Malaman. That's just a few. But this conversation with Rich felt special to me because it felt like meeting someone who understands exactly how my brain and my heart works when it comes to story and horror and how the darkness is sometimes the least important part of the deal. You may not agree. A lot of you perhaps are into this because you like the darkness, you like the bleakness. I know that some people out there love really, really grim, unrelenting fiction. To be fair, that's not me. That phrase about golden-hued horror, that's something I've long felt and never been able to articulate properly. All of my favourite stories, most of them were mentioned in this show, Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes, McCammon's Boy's Life, of course King's The Body, from a Buick 8 and, above all, It. Rich nailed what it is that I love about them, and his own novel feeds that exact same need in me. All of those books are coming-of-age stories, and so is Rich's, though, as we discussed, that threshold can happen later in life. 22 is a very different perspective from 13 or 17, but then again, I also love King's 112263 for similar golden-hued reasons, although there's barely a teenager in sight. The same with Straub's Ghost Story, a book about old men, and more recently, Joe Lansdale's Moon Lake or Chuck Wendig's The Book of Accidents. I've thought about it all week, and maybe it's not about coming of age or kidulthood or even looking back at a previous era as some purer time. I think maybe the thing that links all of these books is the light beneath the shadow, the truth inside the lie. Suffice to say, Chasing the Boogeyman has immediately leapt into the top tier of books I've loved this year, and I hope you hear this authenticity in my voice, because this book is intriguing and grim and cruel and just beautiful. I've not much else to say this week, to be honest. It's It's been a lot of writing, including an article about Final Girls that tortured me, and several new chapters of my novel, and I'm recording future episodes at a hell of a rate, so it's it's mostly been me, head down in my office, with nothing to report beyond eye strain. Oh, have any of you um, downloaded Novelic yet? If you missed last week, it's this book recommendation app that I'm partnering with. Yes, that will mean ads in the future. It's free and it's great, and I'll be using it to offer a digital book club for Patreon subscribers. You can find details in the show notes, and and patrons, I'm just finalising that book club, so watch this space for imminent updates. Speaking of Patreon, I always promise to shout out new subscribers, so welcome to RT and to Rika B. You're both massively welcome in what is growing into a healthy little community. Thanks both for your support, and Rika, your kind words help fuel a very dismal Monday morning. I hope both of you and the other patrons enjoyed my Friday the 13th bonus chat with Adrienne King, a.k.a. Alice Hardy, the actress who played the final girl in the original Friday the 13th movie. She was great and she had a lot to say about her own horrific story after making that film, and it casts a whole new light on aspects of this genre that we all love. If anyone else wants to sign up, please do. 
bonus content is coming thick and fast now and you can find the link in the show notes or go direct to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Otherwise, get in touch on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or on Instagram at TalkingScaredPod. And the fact that those usernames are different across different platforms annoys me as much as you, trust me. And of course, you can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I respond to all emails, though it, it may take a bit longer as the frequency of emails I'm receiving is really picking up. I still can't believe how many people are out there listening. But yeah, it's been a great week. I have loved this conversation and it's inspired me to go back and read some of the books that that gave me such joy in my youth. So if nothing else, read Boy's Life. If you haven't read King's It, please, for the love of God, do. And definitely read Rich Chismar's Chasing the Boogeyman. But until next week, write in your diary, ring up an old friend and keep an eye on the hometown newspapers. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.